Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Risk-off reality, global stocks fall amid a COVID case surge. Restrictions reimposed, European leaders take steps to contain the virus, and tech titans testify. CEOs of Facebook, Twitter, and Google facing lawmakers over liability laws. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Wednesday. Just six days to go now before the U.S. presidential election and some 68 million Americans have already cast their ballots. Just to give you some perspective, that's over half of all votes cast back in 2016. It's an incredible early turnout. It's also raising big questions about how long it's going to take for those votes to be counted as the days to November 3rd grow fewer. The number of COVID cases in the United States and across Europe grow greater. And that's providing, as I mentioned, a reality check, I think, for investors. Futures at this moment down some 2% pre-market. They're adding to yesterday's losses for the Dow and for the S&P 500. European stocks, meanwhile, have now hit four-month lows as France and Germany prepare new emergency restrictions. The German DAX is off. Let's take a look. Almost 4% at this moment. Corporate America Acknowledging the uncertainty too, blue chip Caterpillar, one of those warning that sales are falling as health concerns mount. Shares tumbled over 3% in yesterday's trade. What about today before the bell? Well, Boeing's Q3 numbers actually better than dire predictions that made and expected, but still an overall loss of more than $400 million on the quarter, adding to the pain too the risk that a further 11,000 workers near may be shed by the end of 2021. Uncertainty is the watchword here. No sector is immune, though. Even tech, Microsoft, revenues and earnings beating expectations after the bell yesterday. But the outlook was weaker and investors seemingly reducing their positions a little today, as you can see there. More signs of uncertainty. Let me walk you through it. The VIX volatility index, the market's so-called fear gauge, is now lying at a seven-week high. We're also seeing a flight to the safety of the U.S. dollar. Also, bond prices moving higher, so interest rates or yields coming lower. Growth-sensitive oil prices also falling. Brent crude down almost 4%. Investors, and more importantly, I think businesses and consumers would be in a far stronger position if Congress had have acted to pass new emergency aid. They failed at the worst possible moment. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, a reality check, I think, for investors. You and I have been saying it. Monday, we were saying we were in rose-tinted spectacle land no longer. No. And you have a virus surging really around the world. I mean, look at these lockdowns that they're expecting to have uh, reinforced in, in, in parts of Europe. You have U.S. cases. One economist this morning saying that you'll have record hospitalizations at this pace in the U.S. by Thanksgiving. That disrupts daily life. That disrupts uh, business as usual. And you cannot have uh, an economic recovery that's robust when you have a virus that is s- simply not contained in so many important parts of, uh, of the economy. 
economies around the world. And that's what the fear is here. There's also, I think, a very maybe um, much smaller fear, but something I've been hearing people talk about it. All of this voting that you talked about, this early voting in the U.S., it will take time to count all those votes. And the longer it takes to count all those votes, uh, the more uncertainty or the more oxygen it could give to conspiracy theorists and the likes, people, troublemakers in, in the United States who want to cast doubt on the outcome, maybe contested election. So that's I, I would say that's a, that's a distant second to the concerns of coronavirus and what it means for the economic recovery this morning. Yeah, but it's a real risk. And I think this yeah. is something that finally, just a few days out from the election, and we've been talking about it for a long while now, is, is seemingly dawning on investors, in addition to the fact that the safety net, the money that people were hoping for from Congress now has been well and truly marked off the list as potential support factors. Yeah. There's no, and the timing of it is just so critical. I mean, you're looking at the end of the year when these these rent moratoriums, right, um, expire, and you've got people who will owe thousands and thousands of dollars uh, at the end of the year in rent, and the disruption that could have in the housing market if um, you know if, if if people are thrown out of the, out of out of their rental units, or what that means for the owners of those rental units, right? So there's a real estate uh, factor here that's kind of hanging here, and all of these industries that have been begging Congress for help now face the real threat of tens of thousands of more layoffs. So this is a moment here where Congress could have uh, put shock absorbers on this car as it's still trying to climb out of the ditch. And they didn't. They didn't put shock absorbers on the car. And all of us are going to feel it. Yeah. And that includes S&P 500 companies in particular. I'll throw in one more thing. Greenlight Capital, uh, David Einhorn, saying that, look, big tech stocks are in a bubble at this moment as well. And these, this is one of the key pillars that's held the stock markets up, compare and contrast with the financials, which have been crushed over yeah. the last nine months. Yes, yeah, so this much of the rally this year has been driven by those, by those tech yeah. stocks, you know, it was really, it, which also reveals, I think, maybe the stock market wasn't really as optimistic as maybe it appeared about getting through this virus. It was driven so much by the techs. Yeah, so important. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Almost 3 million coronavirus cases have been reported worldwide just in the past seven days. In Europe, a number of countries are reporting record rates of infection, including Belgium, Germany and Poland. Over in France, President Macron set to announce new measures after authorities reported the highest tally of deaths in a single day since April. Melissa Bell has the details. Julia, Europe continues to battle that second coronavirus wave that has hit this continent so hard. Once again, over the course of the last 24 hours, record daily increases in countries like Greece, Sweden, Germany, Italy. We expect that by the end of the week, fresh restrictions will be announced in Belgium, in Germany as well, where Angela Merkel's been meeting with the leaders of the country's federal states. Here in France as well, Emmanuel Macron's been holding emergency meetings yesterday and today. This evening, he'll take to French television to make an announcement with lots of speculation about how far these newest restrictions will go. It's only been a couple of weeks now since the curfews have been in place. They have not brought the figures under control. We saw once again announced last night another record here in France, the number of people who died over a single 24-hour period, Julia, 523. Hence the fresh announcements tonight. Lots of speculation that Emmanuel Macron could even go so far as a second national lockdown. Melissa Val reporting there. And just to illustrate how bad it is there. Let me just give you this chart showing the average number of new cases per 1 million people in the population. Now, by this metric, cases are far higher in France, actually, than they are in the United States. So this is population adjusted. Still, here in America, we're seeing almost 70,000 new cases now a day. 
CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Great to have you with us, Elizabeth. I just wanted to compare and contrast there to show simply how bad Europe's second wave is. But even here in the United States, once again, Elizabeth, we're weeks behind Europe and our situation already escalating and clearly alarming. Right, Julia. The problem is the numbers are going in the wrong direction. It's not just that it's bad, it's that it's headed in the wrong direction. Let's take a look at a map of the United States. If you look at the states that are in orange or dark red, those are states where the rates are going up. In five states, the ones in dark red, they're going up by more than 50%. So this is 40 states out of 50, it's going up. Only in nine states are the rates steady. And in one state, that state in green, is it going downward? So only one state is going in the right direction. And sadly, hospitalizations and then deaths, you know, tend to follow once you get these numbers up. Julia? Yeah, we see a sea of red there. It doesn't look good. Just want to clear something up as well, Elizabeth. The White House yesterday listing one of their big scientific achievements as ending the pandemic. Just so that I'm clear, has the pandemic ended, Elizabeth? Yes or no? No, and you don't need me to tell you that, right? The pandemic has not ended. It is, how can they possibly claim that? Not only has it not ended, but as we just saw from this map, it's not even headed in the right direction. You know, it sort of reminds me of a child who says something and hopes it comes true. Like, I'm getting a pony for my birthday. No, you're not getting a pony for your birthday, but children are children. We don't expect grown-ups to just say things like, oh, the pandemic ended, yay for us. It's simply not true. It is wishful thinking. Yeah, we're not talking about politics here. We're simply talking about truth and we're talking about the data. Speaking of data, talk to me about this Spanish study that looked at the importance perhaps of vitamin D or specifically vitamin D deficiency in certain patients. Yes, this is interesting. So at this hospital in Spain, they looked at COVID patients and they looked to see whether they had a vitamin D deficiency or not. So let's take a look. They found that among nearly 200 COVID patients, 82% were vitamin D deficient. Now, a lot of people are vitamin D deficient. So they looked at people who were not COVID patients and 47% had a deficiency. So significantly more COVID patients had a vitamin D deficiency than people who did not have COVID. So vitamin D, we know, may impair the, or vitamin D deficiency, I should say, may impair the immune system. So what the researchers said is, look, vitamin D supplements might be helpful for some people. They didn't recommend that we all go out there and take vitamin D supplements, but they said it should be considered perhaps for, say, residents of nursing homes, who we know have a double risk. They have a high risk of being vitamin D deficient, and they also have a high risk of getting COVID. Julia? Yes, because vitamin D can be a uh toxic in too high concentrations as well, but very important, the idea of boosting Mm -hmm. immune systems to to help fight this too. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much for that. Thanks. All right. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg wants the US liability law protecting free speech on the internet to be updated. He'll be grilled soon, along with other tech CEOs, in a Senate hearing on the future of the law called Section 230, which protects a website's ability to moderate content as they see fit. Donny O'Sullivan joins us now. Donny, and therein lies the problem, as they see fit. They're using their discretion right now, and there are plenty of people who say this law needs to be tightened. And it seems with caveats, including Mark Zuckerberg. Absolutely, Julia. I mean, this is a fundamental law 
of the internet. It's allowed companies like Facebook to grow to having billions of dollars in profits because it essentially protects them from liability from what their users post. If you have, if you think about it, you know, if these companies were liable for what their users post, they would have to employ a lot more moderators and do a lot more watching of what's happening on their platform to make sure they can't be sued. Also, the flip side of that, though, of course, is that if they over moderate, uh, if they sort of have to get into a position where they almost have to review a tweet before somebody sends it, well, that sort of stifles expression and speech and just overall uh, engagement on the platform. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, in his testimony today, here's what he's saying. He's saying Section 230 ensured important values like expression and openness were part of how platforms operate. However, I believe Congress should update the law to ensure it's working as intended. And Julia, this is one of the few areas where Trump and Biden actually agree. Both of them want to get rid of Section 230, but for very different reasons. Trump wants less moderation because, as you see, sometimes his post gets removed, sometimes they get labeled as misinformation. And Biden wants more moderation so that these platforms take more responsibility for the hate and for disinformation on their platforms. It's not clear, though, Julia, if by removing this law, by changing this law, uh, either Biden or Trump's objectives would be achieved here. Yeah, right now it's a free-for-all. It's a liability shield, quite frankly, for these big tech companies. And they need concrete guidelines, what's allowed and what isn't, until we get to that point. And I have to say, the sceptic in me says we're nowhere near that today, quite frankly, Doni. But my fear with this hearing today is it gets used. To your point, the politics come into play here and those that say, hey, certain parts of the political speech and views are suppressed by some of these tech giants. What's the prospect of this being hijacked by uh, perhaps members of the Republican Party specifically? Yeah, I think we'd be doing a disservice to our viewers if we were to say this is going to be a substantive hearing today. It's six days out from the ele- from election day here in the United States. This is going to be a partisan spectacle. On the right, uh, let me just show you what Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican, by the way, who's on this committee today, is advertising this event like it's a boxing match. Cruz versus Dorsey, free speech showdown. The free speech champion, who apparently is Ted Cruz, takes on the star of censorship. So you see that this is just going to levels of even new levels of ridiculousness that we're going to have seen in, in previous tech hearings. And, you know, the big questions Republicans are going to be asking is they are very, very upset about how Twitter, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, how, how Twitter handled that New York Post story, that unsubstantiated story about Joe Biden. Democrats, on the other hand, are going to be asking Mark Zuckerberg a whole ton of questions about why aren't you fact-checking ads from politicians? Why aren't you doing uh, more about President Trump? So, you know, I think this is going to be a a sort of showcase uh, in in political partisanship uh, just a few days out for the election. And uh, the three tech CEOs are going to have to, to sit through it all. Yes, a show of all talk and no action, Dodie. How unlike U.S. Congress. Hmm. I know, right? Yeah. Thanks, Tony. The hearing starts in around 45 minutes and will be streamed live on CNN Business. Later on in the show, too, we'll hear from a man whose life has been turned upside down by a baseless conspiracy theory spread on social media. And actually, it was a lot of Tony's work that led us there. So that interview coming up. For now, we're going to take a break here on First Move. The deciding vote in the U.S. elections could cast, could be cast in the Supreme Court rather than the booth. So says Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. He joins us to discuss the possible case around mail-in ballots 
and snapping up Crocs. The Shoemaker reports record revenues as shoppers go for casual during the COVID-19 lockdowns. Stay with us. We're back. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. futures remain near session lows as the sell-off in stocks accelerates. Numerous concerns, as we've discussed, for investors here. Fresh COVID cases hitting record levels in the United States. Almost 70,000 new cases a day and 36 states seeing a rise in hospitalizations. Never mind the concerns that we're seeing across Europe, too. All this with just six days to go before the November 3rd presidential elections. More than 68 million votes have already been cast. More than half of the total votes done some four years ago in the 2016 elections. Some states don't start counting mail-in ballots until election day, meaning it may take days for a winner to be declared. Over the past five sessions, the S&P has lost more than one and a half percent. It's down now some five percent from record highs, so actually relatively little. Those losses, though, expected to get much steeper at the open today as market concerns mount. Economist Paul Krugman joins us now. He's Nobel Laureate and columnist for The New York Times. Paul, fantastic to have you with us as always. You know, ordinarily, if we were talking about 68 million people heading to the polls early, we would be excited about the enthusiasm, about what we're seeing. But you grow increasingly concerned. Just explain why. Okay. I mean, the this is going to be a very weird election. Uh, you know, the coronavirus has scrambled a lot of things. The coronavirus has almost certainly moved the election heavily, you know, against Trump. Um, it's it's actually very hard to see how. He could win now if if all the votes are counted, but it has also raised the strong possibility that all the votes will not be counted because the we have a lot of mail-in votes um, in many states. Those votes won't start to be counted until election day, so we won't have a full total. Um, and it looks as if because you know dealing ac- accepting the reality of the pandemic has itself become a partisan issue. Uh, the mail-in votes are going to be more democratic than the in-person voting. Um, and so the, we have the real possibility now that we'll have an election which very likely um, was, in fact, won by Joe Biden, but where the Trump administration and possibly this now 6-3 uh, conservative court tried to stop the counting of ballots um, before it's over. And that that's crazy. I mean, it, it's... There, there are all kinds of reasons, but it's, among other things, it's, it's crazy for the economy. It, it, there's a, you know, we, we have a, a real nightmare scenario is maybe not the most likely outcome, but a, likely enough to give me the willies. Okay, let's unpack this because there's a lot in there, particularly for an international audience. Yeah. What you're saying is your assumption is that by far the greater proportion of democratic voting as in the party voting, people will do so via mail-in rather than turning up at the polls on the day. And the risk is that we have some kind of contested election scenario after November 3rd. The Supreme Court now weighs in and goes, OK, you've got a limited time to count these votes. And if you don't count them all, they will no longer qualify. And that could yeah, harm right. the votes for Joe Biden. That's right. I mean, the now... 
you know, one scenario, they, to, it's, it's, it's very much state-specific. So Florida counts everything, you know, that has, has started counting already. And, and we, if, if Biden wins Florida, then the thing will be over Tuesday night, and uh, we'll, we'll know who won. Um, but Pennsylvania, uh, although the, you know, the, the Republican legislature has voted to prevent any examination of the ballots until, of the mail-in ballots until Election Day, and, uh, and that means that, it, that the count will drag on for quite a while. So what if Florida, what if Trump wins Florida? Um, Pennsylvania, by normal uh, accounting, is in fact the swing state. If, if as Pennsylvania goes, so goes the nation if, if Trump wins Florida. Um, but um, Trump has won the election day vote, but we know that there's a large number of Democratic mail-in ballots still to come. And on one justification or another, the Supreme Court stops the counting of ballots. That's, you know, uh, um, that's... How that, high that would be is that probability, Paul, in your mind? How high is it? Because we are having the discussion. It's clearly a concern for everybody in light of the swift nomination right. and approval of, of Amy Coney Barrett. How high is the probability? I think it's on the order of 10 or 15 percent. Um, okay, so it's which, relatively you know, it's, low probability. Yeah, but the stakes are so high. So, the, uh, so it's one of those things. It's one of those things where it's probably not going to happen. Um, it's probably, if I believe the election modelers, the, the, you know, there's 70, 75 percent chance that Biden wins Florida, in which case it's over. Uh, and there's a pretty, some chance that he'll win Arizona, which will also be an early reporting state. And in that case, it's over. But if that doesn't happen, then, you know, and it's going to be a very weird thing. Actually, um, among other things, you guys in the broadcast media are going to have an interesting problem because the, they will, there is a lot of modeling going on. There's the Washington Post, the independent sites like Nate Silver's 538 are going to be doing real-time, you know, what, what are the probabilities given where we are right now? And they will probably call the race um, on Tuesday or early Wednesday, but TV networks, which will be much more cautious, probably won't have called it. So what if everybody who's actually studied the numbers says, oh, Biden has won, but it hasn't been officially called, and Donald Trump and his newly expanded Republican majority on the Supreme Court says, no, he hasn't. You know, it, I, I mean, you know, it, it, it's crazy to be talking about this the stuff, risk of confusion is incredibly high. I know I will say from CNN's perspective, we are going out of our way to impress upon people that the votes have to be counted. We have to be patient. We have to make yeah. sure we get this right for so many reasons. One of the reasons we have to get this right, Paul, and, and you mentioned it at the beginning of the interview, is the fact that the covid challenge is increasing. We're all aware of the. Yeah the increasing challenges we go into the winter here and something that would have provided support would have been if Congress could have agreed more financial aid and they didn't. Paul, what are we looking at just from your perspective as a Nobel Prize winning economist? How high is the risk that we fall into recession now simply because we have the COVID challenge ongoing? We have the uncertainty over politics and the fright that that gives people and we don't have the, the financial backing here of a further financial aid. I think that there's very, I, I'm not, not sure if it'll officially be called a recession, but I think that the, better than even Oz that we'll ha at least have a couple of months of shrinking GDP. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason is, um, you know, the extraordinary 
uh, unemployment aid ran out at the end of July, but people had some savings to draw on. There was a little bit of extra aid. That's pro that cushion has probably been depleted now. Um, the and uncer election uncertainty. Um, you know, the uh, suppose you're a business thinking about investing. Uh, the uh, a Biden economy and a Trump economy are going to be very different. The spending is going to be very different. Do you invest in renewable energy, which is a good bet if Biden is going to be president, but a terrible bet if Trump is going to remain in office? Well, you probably, you don't know, but do, do you invest in stuff that benefits from weakened environmental regulations? That's a good bet if it's Trump. It's a bad bet if it's Biden. Um, and given the uncertainty, what you probably do is invest in neither. So that we have a situation in which there's a huge option value up for businesses in just sitting on their hands and not spending. And I think that's and probably true for consumers as well. Yeah, and I think that ties to exactly what we're seeing right now, because the uncertainty of who leads this country going forward, irrespective of what the polls are telling us or not telling us right now, is deeply uncertain. Paul Krugman, great to yeah. have you with us, sir. Noah Laureate, economist for, for The New York Times. We shall see, sir. <laughs> All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. And we are seeing weakness across the board in early trade. The Dow falling, as you can see, for the fourth straight session down. More than 2% at this stage. Shares of economically sensitive firms like airlines, cruise lines and energy companies getting hit particularly hard. One stock, though, rallying in early trading today, General Electric. It shares up some 4% after reporting an unexpected quarterly profit and a positive cash flow due to cost cutting. Paula Monica joins me now. The problem with GE, Paul, is that it's so tiny now it doesn't make a difference. And what we're seeing really, I think, is a reaction not only to the broader uncertainty with regards to election fears, but when you look at economically sensitive, COVID sensitive stocks, these are the ones really being punished. And that's the message. Oh, without question, Julia. And obviously, GE no longer even in the Dow. That's how uh, it has lost a lot of its market prominence and economic power. But you are right. The biggest issue right now, I think, facing the market isn't necessarily even the election, which is looming in less than a week. It's the concern about the spike in COVID-19 cases really leading to significant fear that a second wave is real and it's happening and unfolding right now. And What's happening with the Senate and all those uh, second round of stimulus talks? Oh, yeah, the Senate has adjourned. So we aren't very likely to get any stimulus anytime soon, definitely not before the election. So maybe in the interim period between the election and whether or not President Trump gets a second term or the inauguration of Joe Biden, there could be some deal. But for many struggling Americans and businesses that are out of work, finding it hard to pay their bills, they need that stimulus now and they're not going to get it. Yeah, the fundamentals do matter ultimately, Paul, especially as we say when we're in a pandemic. What did you make it very quickly of David Einhorn's comments? Greenlight Capital investors saying, look, tech stocks are in a bubble. I'm adding to my shorts. This is a pillar of strength of these markets. And if you knock that out, we have a real problem. It would be a particularly big problem if the Fangs plus Microsoft all of a sudden plunge. But Einhorn, obviously respectful uh, of all he has done in his career, but I would argue that this is not 2000. 20 years ago, you had the big techs leading the market. Many of them were unprofitable. The valuations were even more absurd than they are now. 
Try and imagine life in this pandemic without Apple, Microsoft, Netflix, Google, and Facebook. They have a lot of power, unfortunately, and we're going to hear a lot about that during the Senate hearing today. But these are still companies with great revenue, earnings, and cash flow. I don't think they're going to suddenly plunge just because they might look a little frothy. Yes. One man's sell is another man or woman's, admittedly, buy on dip. Follow Monica. Thank you for that. Footwear brand Crocs has some experience turning a pretty ugly situation around. Its initially divisive, colourful clogs are now streetwear icons, thanks to high-profile collaborations ranging from Justin Bieber to KFC. Yes, you heard me right. Latest earnings suggest the brand is also a pandemic winner, revenue surging some 16% as shoppers reached for comfort amid COVID-19 lockdowns. Joining us now is Andrew Reese, Chief Executive Officer and Director of Crocs. Andrew, congratulations on some great earnings. I have to point out, though, it's not just one quarter. So last year was a great year overall for you amid this turnaround. You do do more business outside of the United States, actually, than you do in the United States. And before we talk about the numbers and what you're doing, I just want to get your sense as we watch COVID cases rising once again, how concerned you are as you, you look around the world and in the U.S.? Yeah, I think every business and, and every leader has to be concerned, right? So our, mm. our, our duty is to uh, protect our employees, uh, protect our uh, customers and consumers. So uh, we watch it very, very carefully in terms of the uh, COVID cases and how different countries are handling it. So it, it's, a, it's a top priority. Are you seeing any softening in terms of demand, just if we talk about the, the, the current quarter rather than the results that you've just posted? No, we're not. So as we look at uh, Q3, um, you know, we, we grew 16%, which was uh, which was really a, a tremendous performance in, in the light of everything that's going on. As we look at uh, Q4 of this year, uh, we're projecting to grow between 20 and 30%. And, and in those numbers, we've taken into consideration, you know, some impacts that, that may take place from, uh, from COVID. You know, 38% of our business is digital. Um, so that includes both our e-commerce sites and the digital sites that we trade on with our uh, with our partners. And that's a really important vehicle to be able to reach the consumer when they're at home. And it makes sense. We've all seen companies throughout the last nine months. If you have that digital offering and you can expand quickly as well, it, it certainly helps. Talk to me about the Teenage Explorer and who is a sort of classic buyer of Crocs at this moment, because I mentioned the collaborations and some of them are quite frankly eye-opening and some of them sell out within hours. Right. Yeah. So look, I think we've really targeted that that younger consumer. Um, and there's really a couple of vehicles to do that. Number one has been collaborations. And we've collaborated with a very broad uh, variety of, uh, of, of entities, whether it be, you know, Post Malone, Justin Bieber, KFC, recently Bad Bunny. Uh, and obviously, just kind of think about those names. We're reaching a very broad uh, and diverse group of people, which we're incredibly proud of. The, the other thing that's important to, uh, to that younger consumer is personal. So mm. um, the little gibbets charms that you put in the shoes, um, we've, we've moved that from being a, a child oriented uh, vehicle to being really focused on uh, social media and all of the social things that are going on in the world and allowing consumers to tell stories on their shoes. And they've, they've really embraced that. So the collaborations is critically important to engage that consumer. I would say personalization is as important. We just showed the picture of the Kentucky Fried Chicken, Andrew. I have no words for that. Like the personalization, the gibbets I can, I can cope with. The Kentucky Fried Chicken, I'm quite frankly mesmerized. Um, talk to me about the future here. Because when I look at yeah. the numbers in particular, I see Asia and I think you have this um, sort of icon 
in terms of individuals and the people that you're collaborating with. And that normally would be something that really excels and clicks in Asian nations. And, and there was weakness there. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. So I think you said in your introduction, look, we've done really well during the pandemic. We're doing well now, but we had a great year last year. This has been building for some time. And as we look forward, we have tremendous confidence that we can continue to to grow the popularity of this brand and ignite the enthusiasm and passion of consumers. And you're absolutely right. I think everything we're doing is is absolutely right for Asia. Personalization is right. Collaborations are right. The Justin Bieber collaboration that we just did uh, excelled in Asia, uh, as especially as, as he and his brands are pushing hard into some of those markets to to grow their popularity. Um, and I and I think, you know, we had some weakness in Asia. They've been very hard hit by COVID. A big part mm-hmm. of the Asian business is, is tourist travel. Um, so Chinese tourists traveling to, to, to Thailand, to Indonesia, Philippines, and all those other markets, we're not seeing that right now. Um, and I, frankly, I think it'll be some time before that comes back. Um, but, but also internally, you know, we're in the process of really, uh, we've been in the process of turning this whole company around. And I think that's lagged a little bit in Asia, but we're very confident we've got kind of all the right stepping stones in place that we'll see future growth in Asia. Yeah, it's fascinating. I call them Marmite shoes or Vegemite. You either love them or you hate them. And you've certainly turned this uh, business around. So congratulations on another great quarter, Andrew. And uh, stay in touch. Andrew Reese, Chief Executive Officer and Director of Crocs there. Thank you. All right, coming up on First Move, is freedom of speech a license to say absolutely anything? One couple fighting the conspiracy theorist George Webb. Just watch this. A couple years ago, I I was diagnosed with a rare cancer. Dealing with that situation is way easier than trying to deal with this George Webb situation. It's getting out of hand and it needs to stop. How baseless accusations concocted on the web and spread worldwide can turn lives upside down. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. As the Senate debates the future of free speech on the internet, one family is suffering death threats because of a baseless conspiracy theory that went viral. American mother of two, Mahia Bernassi, was falsely accused of bringing coronavirus to China after visiting Wuhan last October. She and her husband, who we'll hear from in a moment, deny ever testing positive or even suffering symptoms. That's disputed, though, by George Webb, a serial conspiracy theorist who styles himself as an investigative journalist, I quote. When pressed by CNN, Webb was unable to produce any hard evidence. He said his information came from a source that he declined to name. Mr. Benassi, who works as a civilian employee at the Pentagon, joins us now. Matthew, fantastic to have you with us. I think we can only imagine what you and your family have been through, but just describe it for us. Well, Julia, hey, thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, I appreciate that a lot. you know, it, it, it's it's surreal to be honest with you. Back uh, back in March and April and, and May of last year, it was uh, it, it's just hard to explain. I'll be honest with you. And um, you know, when you're actually getting multiple death threats um, uh, that are attached to all these videos that are being done about you, you know, I, I think we had seventy some odd videos that were that talked about us in you know some way. Uh, along uh, from, from our harasser, and um, you know, you, you got to take that stuff seriously. 
And, um, you know, and, and I haven't said this to anyone else, but I'll tell you today, um, a couple days after um, the initial video um, that was released, I, I had Department of State show up at our house. And, and they explained to us that the videos had gone viral in China and that state-run media was blaming, you know, my wife um, for, for bringing the virus to China. And so when you have the State Department showing up at your house, you, you have to take these things seriously. And then the threats, you know, came later. And so, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's been a nightmare. I mean, Chinese state media, as you just mentioned, picked up on, on these rumors. They, I believe, demanded your wife's medical information. At one point, you also had your own home address posted online. Just describe what that's like. I mean, this is, to, to me sounds terrifying. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Global Times, which is uh, argue, not arguably, but is a state-run uh, yes. uh, outlet, and um, they, they did demand uh, for my wife to release her medical information, you know, to prove uh, that at the time she didn't have coronavirus, right? Um, and obviously at the time we, we didn't have coronavirus and, um, yeah, um, it, it, it was, it was a difficult time in, and it was a difficult time for my wife. Um, she, she's still affected by this and, um, you know, um, and, and then the death threats, right? And so, um, as I said, you know, um, our harasser did like 70 videos and in in many of the videos there there's death threats and um you know we improved our security at our house we uh we were became very cautious about what we did um you know because you don't know you don't know if those things are serious or not but you have to take them serious and you know who knows when someone's just going to show up at your house and and try and try to harm you or your family you just yeah, don't know I- it's horrifying. And, and the worst part is, I know you, you went to the police, you went to the authorities and said, look, we're, we're getting death threats, we're being accused of these things. What did the authorities say to you, Matthew? Yeah, so, so we went to our local police first. And, you know, they're saying, hey, you know, there's not a lot we can do. They're, they're not direct threats. They, you know, uh, they, they don't say that they're coming to, you know, kill us this evening or, you know, tomorrow. And um, so then we, we went to... Um, uh, the FBI as well, and uh, they basically said the same thing, and um, and so uh, you know it was even hard to get the FBI uh, to open a case uh, about us. Eventually, we we were able to get the FBI to have an open case uh, against these um, the folks that have um, uh, threatened us, uh, but but you know that case is just sitting there. It's it's there's it's not going to go anywhere. Um, and so, um, you know, they basically say there's, there's not a lot they can do, you know? Yeah. Which is, I think the point and, and the point obviously of why some of these CEOs are in front of Congress in the Senate today to be asked questions about the role they play in tackling misinformation, um, on their platforms. I do have a statement that I want to read very quickly from, um, from YouTube regarding this. They said, we have clear policies against COVID misinformation and we quickly remove videos violating these policies when flagged to us. Matthew, what do you want to see change? 
How should these tech companies be forced to act when there's misinformation spread to the detriment of people's lives, as you found? Yeah, absolutely right. Um, you know, these social media companies, uh, they need to be good stewards of the internet and, and they need to remove uh, harassing, defaming and cyberbullying content, you know, uh, immediately. And, and they, they certainly don't do that effectively today. Um, they just don't. Um, and when, and then two, when victims do report harassment, like we did, um, uh, defamation and cyberbullying, these companies need to take action, you know, immediately. They need to restrict or remove that content, um, and and that needs to be measured in hours, not days and weeks. Yeah. Because in our case, I, we reported that video, the first video, the night it was released. It took uh, six or seven days uh, for them to, to remove it finally. And by that time, you know, it had, you know, 680,000 views have been around the world. Um, YouTube could have prevented this whole situation if they had just uh, removed the content immediately like we asked. And then finally, if uh, social media companies uh, can't be good stewards and they refuse to take action uh, when, uh, when victims uh, let them know about it, then we as victims should be able to hold hold those companies liable for the content that's that's on their uh, platforms. Yeah, and we as users should be better at defending what we see as baseless spreading of misinformation too. Matthew, our hearts go out to you. I think you said that the response needs to be within minutes and hours, not days. We're thinking of you and your wife. Um, and I'm sorry you've been through this. Thank you for joining us. And come back and speak to us soon, please, and let us know how you're doing. Matthew Benessi, thank you Great. once thank again. Thank you very much. Thank you. And if you want to uh, read more on this, Donia Sullivan's exclusive report is on CNN Business, and we'll tweet out the link. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move with a final look at what we're seeing for stock markets. We have a sell-off underway for the major averages amid a broader risk-off tone across financial markets. Energy and tech stocks seeing the biggest declines. Every stock, in fact, in the Dow except one at this moment trading lower. All this as COVID-19 cases hit record highs in the United States. And, of course, just six days to go before a pivotal U.S. presidential election. John Defteris joins me now. John, I don't have to say anything else. I think that spells it out, doesn't it? There's just deep uncertainty at this moment. <laughs> Take some chips off the table. Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe you used the analogy in your lead-in about uh, risk-off going to risk-on, because I was going to say this, uh, the switch has been thrown very quickly, yeah. uh, Julia. And this is not a global phenomenon, by the way. I think this is really centered around the Atlantic, spiking cases uh, in the United States for COVID, but particularly at the core of Europe, Germany, France, Italy, stretching to the south of the Mediterranean and north to uh, Belgium. And that's why we see uh, European markets down 3.5% or more, particularly at the core. I thought it was interesting what Microsoft had to say, a good quarter, but softening demand going forward. And we also have to think about the harder line by the Trump administration against Silicon Valley. There is a hearing on Capitol Hill in the Senate Commerce uh, Committee over content management and bias towards the Democrats. That's the charge right now. So that doesn't bode well for tech stocks. But the number one thing, I think, is the drop in global demand. That's reflected in oil prices that you were talking about. 
We're down better than 5% on WTI, 4.5% on Brent, and below $40 a barrel. Where's the growth going to come from? We had a spike up in the third quarter, dropping in the fourth. It does not bode well for the first quarter of 2021 at the same time. And Julia, every conversation I have here in the Middle East or anybody I'm on the phone with in Europe, they're worried about the shenanigans around the votes and the 68 million ballots are already in through the mail. How long will they get a chance to uh, count them? What happens in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin? Big question marks. Usually they don't factor in political risk ahead of an election. That has changed now because of COVID-19, clearly. And we still, Julia, don't have a stimulus plan from the United States and no clear indication what Europe will do on spending due to this uh, second spike up. Yes, short-term uncertainty with the election, medium to longer-term uncertainty with COVID and no cushion here from US Congress to try and um, support the fundamentals and the real economy here in the interim. John, terrifying. Thank you for that, I think. John Defteris, thank you so much for that. Yeah, we're seeing it spelled out in the markets too. That's it for the show. You're watching First Move. I'm Julia Chastley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.